My name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence. My goal is to explore the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. In addition to leadership, I like to discuss mental health, PTSD, and overcoming adversity. If you have a favorite episode, I would love to hear about it. Message me through social media or my website, and I will share some free tools to help you achieve your goals. Please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you haven't purchased your copy of my book, Fireproof, please grab a copy today. Thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Roy Osing. He is the author and audacious leader. Uh, he is the former president and CMO entrepreneur with over 40 years of successful and unmatched executive leadership experience in every aspect of business. As a president of a major data and internet company, his leadership and audacious unheard of ways took the company from its early stage to $1 billion in annual sales. He is a blogger, content marketer, and mentor to young professionals. As an accomplished business advisor, he is the author of the No Nonsense book series, Be Different or Be Dead. With the audacious, unheard of ways, I took a startup to a billion in sales as his seventh book in that series, and that was uh, released earlier this year. So, uh, Roy, thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation with me, and and uh, just you know, thank you for everything that you're doing. I'm grateful to have the opportunity, uh, Dave. Really, so thanks. Well, and uh, and earlier you said that you're hailing from Vancouver in O Canada. Yes, yes. And as a matter of fact, it's sunny out, which is rather strange uh, for this time of year. But it's sunny, but it's cold. It's about uh, well Fahrenheit. It's it's about thirty two, something like that today. So hopefully that goes away soon. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I want to I want to start off with the the time uh, and place where it all began for you uh where were you born and raised and what was life like growing up well i was born and raised in kimberley british columbia canada it's a place in the interior of the province and it's, it was a mining town then in matter matter of fact it, it was the largest producer of lead zinc in the world and so it was a small town wonderful place to grow up i mean wonderful place to ski and and learn how to hunt and fish with my dad etc and so you know from the point of view of of development it was amazing uh it it really was close friends everybody knew each other which you know sometimes can be a bit of a problem but for the most part it was it was super and um and and it 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 taught me some pretty basic values around integrity and honesty and friendship and love. Um, and so, uh, yeah, but it, you know, like any, any small town, it's, it's eventually it's, it's time to leave. And, and so I ended up going to university in, in Vancouver uh, and got married here. And uh, we've spent uh, our, our 55 years together in wow. Vancouver. Uh, so you've been married for 55 years. 55 years. And I don't know how, I don't know how she can stand it, to be honest. With you. <laughs> I mean, gee whiz. I mean, I'm the luckiest guy in the world to have somebody care for me that long. Geez, I must be doing something right, Dave. I don't know what it is. Uh, hey, <laughs> something, <yeah>. right? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, just to get a, 
a greater sense of, you know, what it was like for you and maybe some of those uh, foundational experiences, you know, were you into sports? I mean, I, I it's like required to play hockey, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, well, first of all, I, I'm an only child. Okay, so I say that I declare that because in many ways, um, it it kind of defined the sort of environment that I found myself in and the environment that I had to learn how to quote survive in. Because without si siblings and so forth, there's a heck of a lot of independence that uh, that you need to get off of quick. And so fortunately. My mother was, I was once asked by a podcast host who was my greatest influence in the world. And, and, and I'd never had that question before. And it just popped right into my head. There's no question about it. My mother was the greatest influence. She imprinted everything that was strong in her. And so I learned at a very young age about strength and how you needed to be strong in order to move forward. And again, particularly when you don't have siblings, okay? around to learn from, et cetera. And I had really good friends and I learned a lot from them, but it's not exactly the same thing. So I learned about strength. I learned about determination. I learned about perseverance. I learned about pain at a very young age. And I mean that metaphorically speaking. I mean, we'll talk later probably because I believe pain is a strategic concept. And it was very, very useful for me in terms of my success and so forth. But at a very young age, I mean, having to go through the pain of, of rejection, the pain of not meeting your own expectations, forget about your parents, and all of those sorts of things. So it was, a, it was an interesting journey, but man, did it ever prepare me. It really prepared me. I mean, I had a shield and an approach to life going into university and early in my career that other people just didn't have. And, and to a large extent, I think it was because of... of my upbringing, my parents, and the values that I learned at a very young age. One thing that you said there, uh, meeting your own standards, were you somewhat of a perfectionist? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I mean, my mother basically um, uh, made me realize what I needed to be, <laughs> whether whether I liked it or not at the time. <laughs> and so... Yeah, I, I learned uh, that that setting the bar was high was what we needed to do without really intellectualizing it the way we can do now, right? It was just a natural thing for me to do. I was getting A's. That was it. I was getting A's in school. I played sports. I played basketball. I played I played uh, soccer and, and those sorts of things, track and field. And, and the goal was always the same. You had to excel. That was the drive. And when I didn't do it, I felt... I felt bad because I disappointed myself first and then everybody else second. And so that sort of mentality, I think, was very influential throughout all my whole life in terms of how I went into, quote, battle, unquote, uh, for the kinds of things that I felt I needed and my organization needed and my career needed and my family needed. Uh, yeah, it was quite, uh, quite formative. So when you went away to university i mean was that right after high school yeah basically uh, we called it the grade 13 up here which is really kind of like preliminary uh, uh, university but i went right into university 
and spent four years getting a bachelor degree in mathematics and computer science. Now, if you can imagine what computer science was like back in the late 60s, early 70s, and nothing <laughs> compared to what it is today. Yeah. But, but it was kind of cool in, in the sense that, that you had to have logic. I mean, it was all based on logic. And, and I actually attribute university to one, one thing only, quite frankly, it'll be tough on that. For me, it just taught me how to solve problems. Like I've never solved a business problem in my life using a differential equation uh, that I learned how to do at university, right? Yeah. I don't use linear regression analysis to forecast because we can talk about this later. I don't believe in the predictability of anything, quite frankly. And, and people that, that actually try perfection in this world are crazy, right? I mean, so there's a whole piece that we can chat about there, but, but yeah. It, it taught me how to solve problems. And that's what life is about. That's what business is about. How to quickly solve a problem that you're confronted with. Not trying to predict the future, right? Not applying all these gee whiz tools, right? Like the subject matter experts want to do. I mean, I, I, subject matter experts in my world didn't like me because I didn't like them. <laughs> it was as simple as that. <laughs> so I expected to drive, to pull the intellectual property out of people's heads to determine what to do, as opposed to relying on the statistical outcomes of a linear regression equation. Ridiculous. And you know what the problem is? Our, our students, the people coming into business today, unfortunately, are led to believe that that's the way to do things. It's not the way to do things. You need, you need a good foundation, I'll give you that, but unfortunately it needs to go further and that's where Roy comes in because Roy's the practitioner, right? Roy's the guy that kind of figured out what we needed to do, but spent a lot of time trying to sort out how to do it in a way that lit fires in people to capture their, not just their minds, but their hearts and souls because that's where execution comes from. It doesn't come from the head. Well, Tell me a, a little bit about really how that drive in you developed. Um, I mean, when you got out of college with a degree in mathematics, <laughs> did you decide to become an entrepreneur at that point? Or you went to work for a, an organization doing something? Yes, yes, I went. No, no, I mean this is looking back retrospect everything makes sense right but at the time of course you know you're 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 sort of trying to figure it out as you go i got out of university i took a job with the local telephone company in vancouver called bc tel as a systems analyst i got the job because of my math degree so i was trying to solve systems problems etc i was in the what they call the data processing department at the time and, and so I just started working on micro problems, et cetera, et cetera, just nose down, working as hard as I could. Um, and then, then something kind of really amazing happened to me upon reflection. And that is I started to notice, I started to notice that as the markets were changing around us, because if you will recall way, way back when telephone companies were a monopoly, and they started to go through a metamorphosis, right? Leading to, to basically transforming the business into a highly competitive more, uh, business where you, know, you, you could, could no longer take customers or anything for granted. 
And it was around that time that I'm down doing my systems work that it, that I started to get um, interested in more interested in what was going on in the markets, the change in the business, and how that was going to affect us. And I concluded after thinking about this for a while that we weren't ready. Now this was at a very very young age. We weren't ready because I, I'm a voracious reader. So even though I don't have a marketing degree or a sales degree or stuff, I just read all that kind of stuff and I learned it through mentors like Seth Godin. I learned it through books. And my conclusion at a very young age was that we were simply not ready. Okay, we're, we're not ready to compete. Okay, the, the important things to succeed in a competitive world, we were miles from actually achieving them and, and, and implementing them in an organization. So I decided that, that I was gonna try and get myself positioned in the organization where I could actually make a contribution that way. My conclusion was we had to be different. So I'm going back, this be different thing, which is my mantra and my brand started at a very young age and was, was the result of simply observing that we needed to do a lot of things differently if we were gonna survive and thrive in a competitive world. And so I, I just basically picked up the challenge myself and started pushing and suggesting and driving some programs and convincing people that we needed to, to, to get a, a, a put a customer service strategy together. We needed to be more marketing oriented around, around the price and market share, et cetera. We needed to start thinking about winning a customer's business every day as opposed to simply answering a phone and taking orders because that was the old way it was being done. And so that's kind of where the germ of Be Different started. And everything that I was asked to do, I always asked myself, okay, how can I do this differently? Well, I observe things, right? There's a herd of people around me and they're all behaving the same way, right? They lacked imagination. They were comfortable in the herd because everybody protected themselves. But the unfortunate thing is there was no innovation and creativity coming from the herd. So I decided that I'm going to step out of that herd and I'm going to start doing things differently. And that basically has been my life's journey uh, from that sort of time frame, which, as I say, was pretty darn close to 40 years ago when I when I figured it out. And, and you know, I, I observe organizations today, Dave, and I got to tell you, I got some major issues. There's a lot of organizations that have learned nothing, even though the world is so competitive. Customers are fickle. They've got so many alternatives. Technology is changing every 24 hours. And yet the same mistakes are being made now that we made as a monopoly. Okay. And it's all textbook stuff, all textbook stuff, doing what the textbooks say. Can you tell me um, just a, a few of those mistakes that you see most frequently? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the basic the basic one is that uh, is that even though the world is highly competitive, okay, my observation is that undifferentiation is actually happening. Okay, you would think that in a circumstance of of rapid change customer options and aggressive competition, you would think that organizations would do a pretty good job of differentiating themselves from their competition, but the reality is they don't. They're mediocre. And let me, let me give you an example. I, I talk about, one of my favorite expressions is claptrap. 
So our claptrap in, in this conversation is when companies use uh, phrases like, we're the best, we're better, we're number one, we're market leader, all of those nonsensical expressions that mean diddly squat to a customer who wants to know why should I do business with you, okay? The nature of, of competitive claims today follow claptrap, okay? And that's why organizations simply can't, can't isolate one another uh, uh, effectively from the customer's point of view. Let me give you, give you a couple of examples of claptrap statements. We have a, um, we have a carrier in, in Canada who claims that they, uh, uh, they provide Canada's largest and most reliable 5G network. Okay, like who, who said that? Who proved that? Okay, what does that even mean? And another one, and you, you'll know this one, okay, this, this coffee company offers the best coffee and espresso drinks for consumers who want premium ingredients and perfection every time. Just two examples of open every, open any book, go Google competitive claims. And this is the stuff you get, okay? Claptrap and aspirations. I mean, we have one company that actually, I love this one, that actually um, says that, that they're in business to save our home planet. That's their competitive claim. And I'll leave it to you to figure out who that is. But look at all of these statements are sort of inside out statements. They're what organizations think of themselves. They are values that they want to aspire to. They are not competitive claims. They are not effective ways to differentiate you from anybody else. So that's the problem. My solution that I figured out very, very a long time ago was I created what I call the only statement. The only statement says this, we are the only ones who Blah, blah, blah. You got to fill that in, right? The only statement is a binary statement. David either exists or it doesn't exist. You can see it, you can observe it, you can prove it one way or the other. And, and I spent my whole life doing this. Easy peasy, right? But hard to do because a lot of people will say, well, wait a minute. We're not particularly special at anything, Roy. I say, well, okay, if it's really true, then your business is in trouble and you better read, be different, or be dead. But I suspect you are, you just haven't figured it out yet and you need some help because the inertia of claptrap drives people to believe that they're not special. I mean, how can you feel you're special if everybody's talking about the fact that they're the best and, and without knowing what that means, okay? And so uh, the only statement is something that, that I've created and used. I use it myself, I use it in my personal life, I use it in my career, I use it with clients, okay? and it takes a while to get it. Now, the interesting thing about this is when, when you're like 80% of the way there, it is magic because all of a sudden you're talking to your customers in terms of language that they get because the only statement is derived from what people care about. Okay, not what you produce. It's got nothing to do with what you produce. It's got to do with your customers care about. That's, that's the sweet spot that you play the only statement in into, okay? So here's a, let me just give you an example. St. John Ambulance is the only first aid advocate that provides safety solutions anywhere, anytime. So what that means is in the province of British Columbia, if you need a safety solution, by the way, it this doesn't say safety products, does it? It says safety solution. So it's a solution to a problem. Do you want that at 4 a.m. on a Saturday? Done. 
when they actually configured their organization around that statement, you should have seen it go. This is a not-for-profit, Dave. This isn't even a for-profit organization, right? So the power of the only statement gets rid of claptrap, and now you're trying to figure out how you are unique in a compelling, relevant way that your customers care about. Now, you notice I didn't use the word need. This isn't about customer needs because everybody's basically got their needs satisfied anyways. It's what you care about, what you crave, what you covet, what you lust for. That's the sweet spot that marketing has to play into with this only statement. And so when you start doing that, by the way, you find out some amazing things like there's no competition. Nobody's thinking this way. And secondly, you can charge premium prices. Margins look sweet, right? Why isn't more, why aren't more people actually doing this is, is, is a bit of a disappointment to me. Maybe it's because I'm not doing my job, right? Clarifying it for people and, and, and talking about it, et cetera. Um, but I think, I think organizations today in this whole area of competitive differentiation are trapped. They're trapped by the inertia of the past or momentum of the past. They're trapped by academic thinking that hasn't changed in a billion years around this subject. Marketing 101 still talks about universal selling propositions that use claptrap. Well, if you read that long enough, you're going to believe it's the right way to do it, right? And so uh, Roy comes along and breaks that up, introduces discontinuity, and people go, huh, well, that sounds interesting, right? So now let's have a conversation and get, get people adopting it. So that's an example, okay? Uh, and I would say, from my point of view, it's the main example of what I think is wrong in business today, the lack of the ability to differentiate. And, and when you have that sort of momentum going on in the market and everybody's, I mean, every organization is having trouble. And I can tell you, one of the main reasons they're having trouble is they're not special. They're not unique. Nobody cares about what they do because they don't care about providing something that their customers want in a unique and compelling way. And so my angst, my energy is to try and yeah, kind of change that a little bit and hopefully it will catch on and we'll actually it's fun because because of these sort of podcasts, I got people emailing me now, Roy, check out my only statement. What do you think? Oh man, that's magic. I have conversations about good stuff, not check out my largest network thing. I mean, I click. (laughs) You know, it really comes to my mind um, when, when we're talking about this, uh, you know, you started off on this path over 40 years ago, (laughs) recognizing that differentiating yourself is going to set you apart and set you, uh, in a, in a position to be more successful than your rivals. And that is a huge change from the norm. And I would imagine that it wasn't uh, just easy peasy talking to your bosses like, hey, this is going to make you a lot of money. I mean, when you first started out, you were nobody. They probably looked at you like you were an idiot. Well, I had a lot of rather queasy grims, grins, if you will, <laughs> when I would go. But, you know, would it? and I can't remember all the details in back way back in day one. 
all I knew is in the jobs that I had, I just, I would just take a different approach and talk about it that way. Like I, I remember this one time, uh, my boss, uh, there was three, I had two or three colleagues of the same level and we had to create a performance plan for our, the people in our teams. And so we were each given that task. So we were given, we weren't, we weren't given any format or whatever. It was open, which is great. We were just given a time frame, And I can remember thinking at the time, I know exactly how the other three are going to treat this challenge, right? They're going to treat it as I want to get this thing done. So it goes away so I can go back to my real job. Right. And I, and all you people listening out there, just think about that. People want, want tasks to be complete, completed fast. Okay. They just want to get it off their desk. Well, I took a different approach. So what I did is I, I did a lot of research on, on different ways of creating career plans. Right. And, and I chose a methodology that was deep and rich and, and, and granular in detail. I chose uh, a different kind of packaging for it. Uh, you know, just all of that, the sort of aesthetics part of it. And I actually reviewed it with each of my uh, managers before I submitted it. So the test of reasonableness was that people were okay with it. It wasn't like I was handing it to my boss and then would have to go to talk about it with my people. I convinced my boss that the career plan was right because the people who were being career planned said it was right. Boom. Did anybody else approach the problem that way? No. So guess what happened? Okay, Roy got a star. Okay, now people are leaning. Oh, okay, that was kind of interesting. Let's see if he can do that again. Well, there was a challenge, right? Because you got to keep doing it. I can't remember the other, but it's the same sort of thing. And after a while, I started to get known as the guy who would, who would do things differently. And I was, I was starting to get asked to come into other departments in the organization to help solve problems, right? Because I had, I was kind of leaning into the sort of the edge part of solution development, as opposed to the same old, same old. And the other thing that I did was I spent a lot of time um, getting people's hearts on side with what we were doing. Just like the, just like the person who was career plan. I had them, I had their heart. I had them, I just had them in my hand because I made them special by talking to them and making the career plan theirs, not mine, right? So that whole approach about engaging people and lighting fires in people, okay, is such, a, such an important part of our, quote, audacious leadership um, that, uh, that, that that one thing people generally don't spend a lot of time doing. If you think about leaders, they spend a lot of time sitting in their office delegating. We can talk about strategic micromanagement after too, because I don't believe in delegating all that much with certain things. So there you go. I'm, I'm out with the frontline people, working with them, understanding what their problems are, helping them. You know, my definition was leadership by serving around. How can I help? And that started at a really young age when the, the objects of my challenges, I engaged where other people didn't. Simple stuff, man. I mean, this is not complicated, but I, it occurred to me and didn't occur to other people. So that was an example of how it started. And then there's a litany of things that, that I've, I did as it relates to building this business to a billion in sales we can talk about, uh, which was simply a continuation of that mindset looking for opportunities to do things differently, 
throwing out tradition, breaking away from tradition, lighting fires in people in terms of the direction we were going. And fundamentally, and this is a really important con, my theme was execution. Okay, everything I did, okay, was made to execute better. Why? Because performance doesn't come from the mind. It comes from execution. And so as a leader, everything I did, all the crazy things I did had one objective and only one objective to facilitate more effective execution in the organization and drive better performance. But we didn't know we were going to get a billion in annual sales. But when we did, we looked upon the, the, some of the stuff that we did and went, okay. I mean, collectively, that's what got us here. And it wasn't traditional stuff. It just wasn't. And so when you think about being different, you got to have a theme. For me as a leader, it was, I got to be different to execute the plan better. Why? Because it's going to drive performance. And that's what my job is. My job isn't to do cool HR things, Dave. No, it ain't. My job is to drive, you know, 25, 30% growth in top line consistently through harnessing the power of people. That was my job. And so the stuff that I did was oriented and driven to produce those results. You, you started your professional career at a phone company and figured out this, this concept of being different. And from, from the phone company, where did you go after that? Never left. You never See, left. The phone company never, well, no, it, it became a communications company. It became a competitive enterprise. It became a, a national competitive enterprise. Um, and and I, I look at it this way. I worked myself around and up. So eventually, I mean, here's what people don't get. A large corporation, people say, well, yeah, I just work for the telephone company. Where's Roy and Walt business? Well, let me tell you, a large organization has got tons of opportunities if you right. want to take advantage of. There are so many businesses. I led monopolies. I led sales. I led marketing. I led business units. I was a chief marketing officer. I led a startup to a billion in sales. Okay. I would never have had the, those opportunities if I left the telco and said to myself, well, I'm going to, I'm going to just uh, go and, and get another job. That's a bit unfair. Maybe I would have, but that's all reflection. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I worked, I've only had one employer. Well, the, myself. the startup mm -hmm. that wasn't the phone company or was yeah. it a startup within the phone company? Yeah. Yeah. That's what it was. You see, cause here's the deal, right? The phone company was a voice company for a hundred years, right? Voice culture, voice network, voice marketing, voice services, blah, blah, blah. Along comes deregulation. And with the deregulation and technological change, along comes, guess what? The internet. While we were in the data business long before the internet uh, hit us because banks were using data to transfer funds and also, so we had a foundation, but not nearly right as, as, as effective and as large as it had to be to actually be a player in the data space, data slash internet, because then it was starting to move into to internet protocol, et cetera, et cetera. It became one sort of opportunity and we called it data slash internet. I was asked to be the president of the company and basically take it to where we needed to take it. Well, the challenge was interesting because don't forget 
we had a voice culture, a voice dominated culture. So one of the things that we had to do was figure out how to move that culture into a highly competitive data culture that had different skill set requirements, different competencies, et cetera, et cetera. And so that wasn't an easy feat. And, you know, we had to go through some, some challenges about people and, and et cetera, et cetera, um, and, and recreating our values, uh, et cetera. And now, by the way, the business that I was, I had the opportunity to, to lead is now 15 billion a year. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm a failure. I only got one. <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is the growth parts of telecom are what they have to be because of the way the market's going. And, but, but there's also all sorts of challenges and, and we had, we had union issues, right? So don't, don't forget Telephone companies were always highly unionized and, and ours was no different. And so one of the things we had to do is convince our union to, to do things differently, right? Give up some of that seniority stuff because if we don't win in the market in now, I mean, we can't go to the regulator for a rate increase, okay? Like you could when you were a monopoly. You can't do that anymore. You got to fight for business every day with hungry competitors. And by the way, the regulator actually had our high hands in certain respects tied behind our back because they favored competition. So they gave the competitors, right, an uneven playing field. So that was just another kind of challenge we had. So it was almost in despite those challenges, we, um, we had to make it successful. Now, the good news is uh, it didn't take me long to figure out that we had a large base of loyal voice customers. And I was going to use that base like you had no idea. We owned them. We owned them. So now what we had to do is figure out a way to actually take them into the data internet world with us. Future is friendly. We had to do. I get goosebumps just thinking about that. You know that, huh? You're taking me way back there, man. This is fun. <laughs> well, um, um... You know, before we started recording, you know, you you let me know that it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies, you know, because this this story that you've laid out for me really sounds like it's all been, uh, you know, smooth sailing. You, you got everything you needed and your innovations were well received and you just accomplishment after accomplishment. It wasn't like that. Like you hit some brick walls along the way. I'm certain of it. What were those lessons that you learned through those, you know, little uh, stumbling blocks? You know. Well, th there was there was. Well, uh, I mentioned pain earlier. I mean, it didn't take me long to figure out that pain was in fact a strategic concept because if you couldn't endure pain which is a metaphor for moving forward despite the odds and, and the backstabbing and, uh, you know, and, and all the objections that, that people like me run into, then you would never make any progress. So literally at every step, people questioned what we were doing. Now, the good news is I had a boss who was a friend who trusted me, okay, without whom, uh, well, who knows what would have happened. He wouldn't have got a billion in annual sales, I can tell you that. So, but, but fortunately, he had enough. Uh, we, we had a lot of time together, so he knew me really well. So, so he, he, he gave me the degrees of freedom 
that I demanded in order to, to do what we had to do. Okay, but that's just the boss, right? I mean, now you're dealing with a whole organization uh, that, that basically we're, we're looking at these changes that they couldn't understand, okay? Uh, and let me give you, let me give you um, one example. Um, I launched a program called the Dumb Rules Program. You know, a dumb rule is actually a rule that makes absolutely no sense to a customer whatsoever. All it does is piss them off and it just does, it makes them not want to do business with us. And for you out there that work in organizations that don't think you have dumb rules, you just haven't asked your frontline people. So we had these things. So I, it was part of my, what I call cleanse the inside. Now, why would I want to cleanse the inside of roadblocks and barriers and dumb rules, Dave? Well, I wanted to do that to execute better, which drove performance again, right? So I'm just totally execution. So we started this, this program. I mean, people in the organization, I'd show up uh, in, in a frontline or a call center and I had a white t-shirt on with dumb rules written on the front with a big X through them, right? And so that was, I was in the workplace every day, practically with these, you know, promoting the contest. So what was it? It was, well, it wasn't a contest. It was a program. So what we did is we just solicited dumb rules and said, look at, okay, we're going to have contests. You guys come to us with the dumbest, stupidest thing we do that piss customers off. And we're going to get rid of it or change it because some of the stuff you can't change, but at least you can try and make it customer friendly, right? You wouldn't have believed what happened. I mean, we are getting all of these things, all these suggestions and dumb rules, which we just gradually just knocked down one by one by one by one. I held my management team accountable. So their performance plan was to aid and abed killing dumb rules. Now try and find a performance plan out there somewhere that the HR guys wouldn't get upset about if you ever called killing dumb rules. But people looked at that and went, well, that right. In fact, in fact my, my CFO at the time says, Roy, you, you, you can't call them killing dumb rules. And I said, why not? Well, the language is, you know, you're a president of a company. What? I said, well, okay, I, okay, I won't call them dumb rules. I'll call them stupid things. How about that? No, no, you can't call them stupid things. I said, that's why we're going to call them dumb rules. And so it stuck. People got to know it. We had contests. We had winners, celebrations in the workplace. Just simple stuff. People were just on fire because finally, finally they had somebody senior in the company who understood the strategic power of stupid rules in terms of customer engagement. Okay, name me one president that gets involved in a rule system in an organization. Yeah. I can't think of any. And, and so that's an example of, of what I call strategic micromanagement. You micromanage the things that are critical to what? The execution of your strategy. Why? To drive performance. And I did that. And I, I, I concluded that if I didn't cleanse the inside of this company, Okay, we we're going to have barriers and bureaucracy and roadblocks and cheesed off customers that will not allow us to grow. So I did something about it. And what I did, I attracted all, you know, here they came. I mean, everybody came out, told me what a dumb idea it was until we, until they actually saw it working. So that's an example of something that we believed was important to do, started doing it and basically managed the flock. That's what you have to do, manage the flock. 
and just don't be put off by that. And you wouldn't have any idea the amount of conversations that people wanted to have with me to tell me how stupid I was. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, I hear you. I'll tell you what, if it doesn't work, I'll change it. What are you going to change it to? I'm going to change it to another program called Cut the Crap. It's the same, same bottom lines, part of cleanse the inside, get rid of the stuff that's bureaucratic and blah, blah, blah. And I said, and I want the internal auditors on this team because, you know, 30% of the dumb rules and crap are caused by control freaks called internal auditors. And I had, <laughs> I had some interesting conversations with them as well. And so it was just kind of like a day in the life of, okay? Yeah. A day in the life of be different. You know, I've never thought about it that way, Dave. You just pulled that out of me. I'm going to use that day in the life of. That's got a lot of posting social media potential, don't you think? Uh, 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 that might uh, be a part of the title of this interview <laughs> <laughs> a day in the life of man i get tired just thinking about some of that stuff i gotta well, tell you when so i want to i want to touch on your your book series we talked a little bit about it before uh you know before we started recording right now did you become a blogger before your first book or, uh, you know, how did, how did that all evolve? Because it's a, a yeah. series. Yeah. It, interesting story. First of all, I left, uh, I, I left my company, um, as the chief marketing officer. So I went from the president of the data company, then they needed a more of a CMO. So I, I was asked to do that. And then very shortly after I decided that it was time to move on uh, in 20, um, in 2002. Okay. So I've, I've been without a quote real job for 20 years. Right. Yeah. So, so when I left, um, I mean, I did the normal thing cause I really didn't have that much free time when I was working. And so we did a lot of traveling, et cetera, et cetera. And then one day in Vegas, uh, my wife turned to me and she says, well, it's September. What are you going to do now? And I thought, hmm, okay, there's a disguised question. <laughs> so I said, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think? And she says, well, you've always had so much fun talking to people about customer service and marketing and the different things you did. Why don't you just go do that? I said, okay, I, I understand that, but I don't know that I still have the content in my head. So I sat down. Uh, and I started driving out some PowerPoint slides. Well, I drove out 500 PowerPoint slides. So I had the content. Once it got rolling, it just came out. So I just went on a, on a pro bono kind of like a gig with the Chambers of Commerce and small business and any organization that, that wanted to kind of hear about my stuff. Because I had good, good contacts in Vancouver and BC. So people knew who I was because of my, my role with the telco, right? So I had lots of opportunities to get in front of people. And I did a variety of presentations. One of the things I didn't do is I never provided handouts. Okay. Cause I, I was concerned about not wanting to share <laughs> stupid, <laughs> crazy anyways. So it turns out that people were getting quite upset about the fact that, that I wasn't giving them handouts. And one day this one guy says, Roy, okay, I get that you don't want to give out handouts. Okay. But why don't you just write a book? So the book actually um, originated from this sort of this, this series of presentations that, that I, I started giving once I, quote, retired. And the, and the subject of the one that people really, really loved 
was called be different or be dead. It was all about what you and I have been just talking about, differentiation. This was in, okay, we're talking early 2000s here, okay? That's how far this subject goes and the need to differentiate goes, the conversation goes. It's not a new conversation. So anyways, I said, okay, I'll work on it. So I wrote my first book in two th and published it in 2009. It called Be Different or Be Dead, Your Business Survival Guide. So the basic notion was differentiation uh, from a business point of view, marketing, sales, service, because I led all of those. So it was very broad and in subject matter, the scope, and people really liked it. I went through a second edition, but one of the things that they said is we, we really like to, to learn a bit more about how this applies to careers. You know, a little more about the only statement, right? Give me some more stuff about the marketing piece. And so that led to um, writing uh, a four, I think, four eBooks just with vertical slices leading up to last year where I, when I decided to uh, update basically the whole subject because I, I learned so much about my content by talking about it with guys like you and so forth, right? It just, just opens stuff up for me. Again, it's very rich and a very deep uh, subject to actually have a conversation about. And so in May, um, I wrote uh, and published um, through Morgan James in New York, my seventh book called Be Different to Be Dead. But the spin this time, the focus this time was leveraging it around growth as opposed to survival, right? Growth and, and getting a little more granular about some of the stuff that you and I just talked about, right? Some of the some of the, uh, the, the work around the only statement that I've learned working with clients, et cetera. And so that's what kind of led to the last book in the series. And, um, and yeah, and the interesting thing is, I mean, people are still interested in, in six acts of leadership, for example, which is one of the eBooks that I wrote, which just dives into leaders and they're interested in marketing in the storm, which is my spin on what, what you need to do from a marketing point of view, because whether you know it or not, you're in the storm, dude, you're not in a nice calm marketplace here. You need to do it. And I wrote a wrote one specifically on how to power up your career as well. So people are kind of interested in that. So yeah, there's a series. What, where's the best place to get a hold of uh, these books in your series? Well, come visit me at bedifferentorbedead.com. And so I've got a page on the books there. It gives you a bit more information on them. And the other thing that I'd encourage your, your listeners to do is check out my blog. Like I've been writing about this stuff since 2009. Okay, so I became a blogger when it was a means to put my content in front of people. I, I ended up in social media as a means to get my content in front of people. Okay, so subscribe to my blog. I blog every week uh, on a different angle of be different or be dead. And, and I'm hard on some organizations. Uh, I'm hard on, on behaviors that I think are dysfunctional because they don't lead to productive outcomes and high performance. Um, so people can check out my blog as well. But at the end of the day, uh, I, I have an email, roy.osing at gmail.com. And I'm happy to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with people. I mentioned earlier, I get emails from people sending me their draft only statements. Roy, check this out. Or Roy, you know, I've been asked to do this in my career and I'm not, it doesn't feel right. What do you think? So all I do is just give them a different, a different set of eyes, different perspective, not trying to be prescriptive in any way, just saying, hey, if you want an, an opinion, I got lots of opinions and I'm not going to shy away from giving you an opinion and take it for, for what it's worth.
And so I'm happy to engage in any, with people in any way they want, Dave. And um, so my book, Fireproof, uh, I, I published through Morgan James Publishing Did as you? well. Awesome. Yeah. So David's it, an awesome dude. It just uh, released October 11th. Oh, so. well, how come I didn't see that? Well, maybe it was before we, we hooked up, I think, probably. Yeah. Well, um, what, what's interesting is uh, I wanted it to release in May, and it, it was the time frame was too compressed. Uh, but man, uh, there's there's some really good authors that ha I've been meeting from Morgan James, and it's just it's interesting through our conversations in the interviews that I discover that it's Morgan James was their oh, publisher. Yeah. So yeah. it's pretty cool. Um, yeah. Yeah, and cool. so far, how have you liked them as your publisher? Oh, they've been great. I mean, they, they've got a great business model. They, they provide terrific service. They make, uh, they make the, the, the author the center of their attention, and that's as it should be. I mean, so there's really good kind of like business principles that, that David understands and, 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 in fact, more than understands, he executes on them. Yeah. So I got a lot of time for them. Uh, but the truth, uh, we'll see. I mean, we're coming up to six months, so we'll see what the reports say. <laughs> and it's, it's. I'm, I'm super, super uh, excited about finding out exactly where I'm going to be at the end of six months. And it's a bit, uh, yeah, a bit stressful. But we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out uh, my sales next year. So it'd be pretty cool. Because it, it, you know, what does it take? It takes like what three months to really. Well, I, I was told that the, the, the reports will be out in six months. So I'm coming up to six months. And for me, it's just a, well, I guess it's kind of like a, 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 an indicator, okay, of, of whether the content is resonating with people. And, and I've only been doing these, I've done about, about 45 podcasts since, since before the book was launched. Because again, David's suggestion I love the format. I just love the conversational format, et cetera. And so we'll see whether hopefully that will make a difference and will help me spread my word. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, the sales will be kind of like an indicator of whether that's working or not. And, and that'll, that'll cause me to do something else depending on the result. <laughs> what, what I'll tell you why, why my content resonates with people because they get it. It's simple. Okay, it's not complex. I, I mean, look at it. A leader's job is to dumb it down so people get it, so they can apply their heart to something. I do that. It's not like I don't take you to a formula, right? I beat the hell out of formulas. People love that because they don't believe in them either. And so that's how it kind of resonates. And if you can communicate that with passion and conviction and a good platform, so much the better. Yeah, I, I think it's really awesome how, when when you talk about leaders and and you know truly great leaders, the people that follow them they follow them because they believe that they're going to be better for having done so, and when when people follow, will have followed you, they see the successes that you've had. And they hear the message and it resonates because being different, it not, you know, not all the time, but
but in your case, the different that you're bringing them is better than what the other organizations have been doing. When you see the same thing over and over and over again, we all do, you know, what's the difference between this and that? The price? I mean, is that really, or the packaging? It's the same product. What can we do, especially, you know, the entrepreneurs? And I mean, even when you talk about, I mean, you mentioned the EMS providers. You know, I come from the fire department. You know, worldwide, the fire service, you know, what are they doing to set themselves apart? And I, I don't know that, uh, I mean, there are truly great fire departments. And then there's the ones that, you know, look like uh, a circus act. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the other thing is they just don't know. They're just they're they're just going through the rote of what they believe they should be doing without without creating what I would call a strategic context for what they do. Like when I work with a client, I start at the very beginning. Well, you mentioned uh, startups. I mean, I I love working with startup CEOs because the first question I say I ask them is, "Explain to me how your idea is different than what's out there." And if you can't stop spending money and go figure it out because generally what they'll do is they'll 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 tell you about the sexiness of the technology right and and all the ai tools it uses blah 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 blah, which to me isn't even important if you have an idea that's the same as everybody who cares and so get the kids off the street and tell me how it's different because i mean and and it's it, it happens all the time. I mean, I will rarely find somebody, rarely find somebody who's really thought this out. And so I try and spend a lot of time in my blogs and talking to people like, like this to say, look at first question, forget about the technology. Let's think about the idea and tell me how it's different. Why should I buy your new idea as opposed to somebody else's? And, and don't, don't tell me it's hard work and, and, you, and you're going to focus on the product. Now they can get away with it because unfortunately marketing one-on-one focuses on the product, not on how the product is different. I mean, e even the chapters on unique selling propositions, they're not really unique at all. I mean, I had a conversation the other day with, with, with a guy and I was talking about this and he says, well, he says, look at the, my approach is, you know, we need ideas, right. That, that, that address the pain people are feeling. And I said, no, no, that's not right. Okay, you need new ideas that address the pain in a unique way. Fil finish the sentence, for God's sake. I mean, just because you have a solution to a problem doesn't mean you have a differ differential advantage. And yet, that's what's being promulgated. Yeah. Okay, and I see it on social media every bloody day, and I'm getting tired of it. And I try and go back and give them some, you know, come gee whiz, blah, blah, blah. But, but it's this notion of, okay, your product does this to solve this problem in a way that nobody else does. Finish the sentence. Please finish the sentence. That tells me you've at least thought through the important part of it. But to come up with a solution to, to a problem in and of itself doesn't guarantee anything. Nothing. I mean... 
End of story. <laughs> QED, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's next on the horizon for you? Do you have another book in you or is seven the last one? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I, look, I'm a, I'm a guy that believes in planning on the run. Okay, you can read about this in my, in my book. It says, you know, set, set about sort of a journey. We'll he, sort of head west and we'll start to experience the journey as we head west and we'll learn whether we'll learn where to go out west, whether it's Vancouver, whether it's San Francisco, whatever. And I'm kind of like that way with this content right now. It's like I'm just enjoying the moment. I'm in the moment talking to guys like you, enjoying the experience, trying to convince people and, and seeing some, you know, pupils dilate every once in a while, which is kind of cool. Um, and, and so as long as I have the energy and uh, momentum, I'll just keep doing it. If another book um, uh, idea pops up, then of course, but it'll be a function of doing this. That'll happen. It's not going to be cognitive, right? It's just not like I have this phrase called you got to eat your own dog food. Okay. What that means is <laughs> you got to practice what you preach. So, so Roy is a planner, a guy that plans on the run. So if another book pops out during my running, that'll be the Genesis and I'll go to work on it. Um, I'm just happy doing what I'm doing right now. And, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I will have links, uh, in the show notes. Um, and everybody listening, you, you got to check this out. I mean, I, I really hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Uh, this, uh, this is sure to be a book series that, that, you know, the people listening to this show are really going to be able to dig into and, and take away some stuff. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Very welcome. And again, I'm honored to, to have the opportunity to speak with you and your, your audience. Truly I am. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review.